Good morning again. We are going to be in Genesis. We're going to be in lots of places, actually, but we're going. The main text that I'm drawing from is Genesis chapter one, and I'm calling this introduction to God and creation. We are introduced to God here. There's an important question that we have to answer. So there's two: Who's God first? And who are we second? So in answering the question, who's God first? Start at the beginning. This is where we are introduced to God. Genesis chapter one is foundational to the rest of scripture and is foundational to our theology. Genesis one's the beginning is the beginning of the Bible. Um, it is important to our theology in general and our redemption in particular to have a firm grasp of who God is. You know, I think R.C. Sproul said um, the problem, our problem is we don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. Okay. So uh, we do need to get that. So we'll start at the beginning and it's, it's a little long. It's 31 verses. We will do a read through. And then we'll draw from it several foundational principles and things about God, introductory information about God and creation and about us, about man. So we are being introduced to God, ourselves, and his creation. And if, you're, if you've gotten there, we're going to start reading Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said that there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind. And trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we thank you again for your gathered church, and we ask, Father, that you would open our minds to understand your word, and you would help us and you would help me to deliver your message, what you have to say to your people, God. I ask, Father, that you'd be glorified this morning, that we would be edified this morning, and we thank you so much for your salvation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What do we see here in the opening chapter of the Bible? Well, we see there's a God who created. Okay? And we see how he did it. There should not be a debate here to be settled. The language is clear, it's plain. He created, and he created in this way. Even though there's controversy, even in the among Christians about this opening chapter. But the language is plain, the language is clear. Beginning with um, the first verse, um, what does this tell us about God? This is the question before our minds this morning. What does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about us? Um, so, uh, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God. We see here, um, initially, uh, the eternality of God. God is eternal. Okay, it says God created the heavens and the earth. So here we see God and God alone. We don't see anything else. We don't see angels yet. We don't see human beings yet. We don't see any matter until he creates it. So here indicates that God created everything out of nothing. Um, and that God is before all things. It says in the beginning, God. So God is first. And we begin, the Bible begins when time begins in the beginning. There was no other than God who had created the time. And God and God alone created the heavens and the earth. And when we say out of nothing, we, we mean that creation, except for man, was not made out of things that were already existing. Okay, that's what we mean. There was something. There was God. There was the word of God. And prior to his work of creation, there was only God. The Lord alone was, and he was from all eternity. We started a series on Revelation last week, um, and we read this passage. Um, Revelation 1.8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Another indication of this out-of-nothing creation is that we read how he did it, how God created. He spoke, and it was. It was the word of God, who was God, and was with God, according to John 1.1. Uh, and Hebrews 11.3 tells us the universe was created by the word of God. Everything, every created thing, 
depends on God for its origin, for its creation. And we will see also that every created thing depends on God for its continuation. Unlike his creation, however, our creator depends on nothing outside himself. God is self-existence, having the power of being in himself. We were created. We were created in time. We are not eternal as God is. And in God, we live and move and have our being. That comes from Acts 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed um, anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Man did not make God. God made us. And God doesn't depend on us. We depend on God. We depend on him for everything. We depend on him for life, for being Unlike his creation, God is. He just is. He eternally is. He reveals himself by his covenant name in Exodus 3. He says, I am that I am. He's saying he is the eternal one. And there never was a time when he was not, and there never will be a time when he will not be. Okay. So God is eternal, and we'll move on. And what else do we see here in chapter 1? We are introduced to the idea of a God who is a plurality of some kind in unity, okay? And we find out in the rest of Scripture that we're dealing here with um, a triune God. So we see the triunity of God as well. God is triune. There is no other God but one who is three in person. God is one essence and one being. He is three in person. And God is three distinct persons, okay? But each person is fully God. And all that he is in his one being. Therefore, in the beginning was the triune God. And the triune God created. And this is evidence throughout scripture. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This makes it clear that the Word, who is the Son, the second person, of God, he was there in the beginning, which is where we are in Genesis chapter 1. He was there, and nothing was created without him. We have God the Father, says in the beginning, God. And John, here we find out God the Son was there, who is God. In verse 2, we see the Spirit of God. Furthermore, if we look down Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, we see this idea introduced to us. Um, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then it says, so God created man in his own image. There's different interpretations here. There's the, um, there's critical scholarship that would say, Hey, look, this is um, polytheism. There's another interpretation here. That, oh, well, it speaks to the magnificence of God or the magnitude of God. He's so magnificent that it would be appropriate to refer to him in the plural. Um, and the third is that we are looking at, at the Trinity here. And uh, if we look at the rest of the Bible, I think it's clear that we're dealing with the Trinity here and also the grammar here in the Hebrew. And we'll look at that. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. And look down in verse 27, God created man in his image. Look at the first God in verse 26. Then God said here, well, often God is, is a, a plural noun anyway, but it, God is a plural noun here, Elohim in the Hebrew. So God's a plural noun. Yet the word said, the verb said, is in the third person singular. Interesting, isn't it? We see both the plural pronoun our, let us make man in our image, and the singular his, down in verse 27, um, both referring to God's image. Our and his, both referring to God's image. I think we're being taught here in a limited way. God is a plurality and unity of some kind. Of course, the rest of the Bible tells us God is triune. We do see the Trinity taught throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. We get glimpses of it in the Old. We get a, a, a more fully revealed, though mysterious, um, doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. If we look in the Old Testament, we see passages such as Isaiah 48. Uh, it's verse 16, but we'll, we'll look at verse 13 first to introduce the speaker. Verse 13 says, my hand laid the foundation of the earth. Whose hand laid the foundation of the earth? God, the creator, who we're reading about in Genesis 1. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So God is speaking. In verse 16, we read, draw near to me. Hear this from the beginning. I have not spoken in secret from the time it came to be. I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Is that confusing you? God speaking, saying God has sent me. Where do we see that? We see that in the Gospels. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God and covenant agreement with the Father, was sent by the Father. He said that, didn't he? To secure the redemption of his bride. And the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, was sent as our comforter, our helper. Commenting on this passage, John Gill writes, Here is a glorious testimony of a trinity of persons in the Godhead. Christ, the Son of God, is sent in human nature as a mediator the Father is the sender of him, and so is a proof of the mission, commission, and authority of Christ, who came not of himself, but was sent of God. John eight forty two says, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So this triune God who has redeemed us, the same triune God who has created all things. Don't see an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. It's the same God from the very beginning, the same triune God who has saved us. So this doctrine of the Trinity is derived from three points. The first is that the three persons of God are distinct from one another. The second is that the three are each fully God. 
And the third, the three are one being, one God. For example, we see in the account of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the delineation of the persons of God as distinct persons. Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The son is being baptized. Jesus is being baptized. The spirit is descending and the father is speaking. They're distinct persons. Each of them are fully God. The Father is God, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. The Son is God, Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Holy Spirit is God. Acts chapter 5, 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So verse 3 They lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, they lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God. That was the second component of the doctrine of the Trinity. Three distinct persons, each fully God. The third was the three are one being. God is one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Man did not invent this. Man invents many doctrines of the Trinity that are false. Modalism is one example that's common. But the true doctrine of the Trinity is is a mystery to us. There's no appropriate analogies for the Trinity. We should not explain it by way of analogy. We should just lay out what the scriptures say and let it be a mystery. Because it really is. And there's nothing else like God. In this, in this sense, God is trying. Okay, moving on to the next point. God created all things, we read. Um, we read of his creation in Genesis 1, and we read in the rest of the Bible. God created all things, visible and invisible, and God is preeminent. God made all things visible and invisible means visible is material, invisible is immaterial. Okay. In Colossians 1, 16 through 17, we read, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We see here in Colossians chapter one, four things, four things are asserted here. The first thing is that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe of all things, visible and invisible. All things that had a beginning, whether they existed in time, whether they existed in eternity, he created all things. The second point Um, Or the second thing asserted here is that whatsoever was created was created for him. He created for himself. And he was the sole end of his own work. Third, he was prior to all creation, to all beings, visible, invisible. In the uh, statement, he is before all things. It's where we see the eternality of God. Finally, in him, all things hold together. This means that he is the preserver and governor of all things. For by him, all things hold together. Some translations say, um, in him, all things consist. 
means all things hold together. They consist. And uh, Adam Clark commented on this well, and I want to read that to you. He wrote, creation is the proper work of an infinite, unlimited, and unoriginated being, possessed of all perfections in their highest degrees, capable of knowing, willing, and working infinitely, unlimitedly. The creator acted of and from himself, for as previous to this creation, there was no being besides God. Consequently, he could not be actuated by any motive, reason, or impulse without himself, which would argue there was some being to produce the motive or impulse or to give the reason. Creation, therefore, is the work of him who is unoriginated, infinite, unlimited, and eternal. In apologetics, there are several classic arguments for God. There's the teleological argument or cosmological argument that has to do with God being every every effect has a cause, and then God is the first cause. Of course, the argument there, what's the objection there? The objection is if everything has a cause, then God has to have a a cause too, but uh, there's no claim that everything has a cause. The claim is every effect has a cause. God is no effect. He is the uncaused first cause. He's the uncaused cause. Clark goes on to say, as every effect depends on its cause, it cannot exist without it. So creation, which is an effect of the power and skill of the creator, can only exist and be preserved by a continuance of that energy that first gave it being. Hence, God as the preserver is as necessary to the continuance of all things as God the creator was to their original production. But this preserving or continuing power is here ascribed to Christ. For the apostle says, and by him do all things hold together. For as all being was derived from him as its cause, so all being must subsist by him. We depend on Christ for everything, for our being, for our life. We continue because he's preserving and upholding us. If we are believers, we are in and we are in Christ. We are sustained and upheld in our salvation. He is the preserver of all things. Next point. God's creation reflects his glory. When we read that opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, what did we see? When we look around and experience creation, what do we see? What do we experience? It all reflects his glory. Note the beauty of creation. Note the variety. Note the order the power, the accuracy. It's all for him, and it glorifies him. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. He strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the people give strength. I'm sorry. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Psalm 29. Calvin comments on Psalm 29, that there is nothing in the ordinary course of nature throughout the whole frame of heaven and earth, which does not invite us to the contemplation of God, or at least invite us who believe to the contemplation of God. There's a devotion 
um, a daily devotion in Table Talk magazine that spoke to this too. Um, it said, God has not left himself without a witness to his glory in the created order. And then it goes on to, to say, thus, even people who never read a Bible in their lives know that there is a creator and that they owe him worship and gratitude. So in the devotion, it says, okay, God has not left himself without a witness to his glory in, in creation. But it also goes on to um, note the consequence of that and that um, we all know there's a creator just by what he's made everyone and Romans chapter one confirms that doesn't it in Romans chapter one we read in verses 19 and 20 for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. We see the glory of God in creation. It's called natural revelation in theology. Natural revelation is not sufficient to make a man wise into salvation. We need the word of God uh, for that. We need to hear the gospel for that. But it is sufficient to reflect the glory of God such that no one can say there is no God without suppressing the truth that they have about him through what has been made. Okay. All right. And we're going to transition a little bit here and focus a little bit on the creation part. So we've been introduced to God a little bit, haven't we? And the first component of this um, next section is um, that God created in six days, which is a controversial, apparently. Um, the language in Genesis 1, um, I think, was, was clear. Um, is clear to us, was clear to them. To children, we're commanded to teach our children. I don't think the, the original audience was very sophisticated. I think the language is plain and clear. If we look carefully at the Genesis 1, uh, I think it's clear um, that God created in six literal days. Literal days. First of all, we're told that he created the earth in uh, darkness and then created light. And he called the light day. He called the darkness night, day and night. He said there was evening and morning the first day. He continued to say evening and morning for each day, evening and morning the second day, on through the sixth day. Um, everywhere the word, the word day is yom in the Hebrew it's used several times, and uh, and if you a good resource for this kind of stuff is Answers in Genesis. I would recommend it. And um, they noted that um, when you see Yom, especially as it appears with a modifier, like a number, like sixth day or first day, or if it appears with evening or morning, it means a day. So day means day. In Exodus 20, 8 through 11, God commanded the Israelites to work six days. He's commanding them to work six literal days, okay? And to rest on the seventh literal day, because why? He created in six days, okay? And if we read through the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus, the apostles, would read this as straightforward historical narrative, Okay. So we believe in a recent six-day creation, literal six days. God has spoken clearly here. God has spoken truthfully. Next, God created man. First of all, man was made after other creatures. Man was the last entity to be created. Man was the climax or pinnacle of creation creation of man was immediate as opposed to immediate, meaning he was created out of pre-existing matter, i.e. the dust of the ground. 
as chapter two says, man did not develop through a process such as evolution. He was made by the in immediate intervention of God. Again, he was not made out of nothing. Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Man was created in the image of God, in the image of his creator, and given the requirement to have dominion over all uh, other created things on earth. God created man with reasonable and immortal souls. The scriptures teach that God formed the body of man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. According to this account, man consists of two distinct principles, a body and a soul. Yes, there are different views on that too. One material, the other immaterial. There's a fancy word for that in theology, realistic dualism. This is the historic Protestant biblical understanding. There are two distinct essences in every human person working in union, body and soul. Together they form the individual person with a complete human nature. The soul exists, as we know, and functions without a body for a time after physical death. That demonstrates a true distinction of the two as to essence. Okay, so there are two distinct essences. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Soul and body. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Charles Hodge, in his systematic theology, he, he wrote, man then, according to the scriptures, is a created spirit in vital union with a material organized body. The relation between these two constituents of our nature is admitted to be mysterious. That is, it is incomprehensible. We don't know how the body acts on the soul or how the soul acts on the body. These, however, are plain. One, that the relation between the two is a vital union. In such a sense as that the soul is the source of life to the body. When the soul leaves the body, the latter ceases to live. Number two, it is also a matter of daily experience that a healthful condition of the body is necessary to a healthful state of mind. We are body and soul in vital union with one another. Why is that so important? Well, it's true. What the Bible teaches an understanding of this concept of realistic dualism, I think opens our eyes all the more to the radical uh, nature of death where the two are, are separated, the two are ripped apart. That is a radical violation to the constitution of an individual. Death is the wages of sin, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next, God created man, male and female. God created man, male and female. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So this speaks to a lot of what's going on in our culture right now, doesn't it? The difference in gender is rooted in creation. It's at the core of one's identity. It's not something that's added on later. What's going on today in our culture is the acceptance of this gender fluidity. It's rebellion against God and his creative design. God said he created them male and female. 
So what do we say? What does man say? What does the world say? world says, no, you didn't, being at enmity with God. I can be anything. I can be whichever I choose. Not what God chooses. Not what God wants, what I want. And I can create additional genders. How many are we up to now? Infinite, theoretically. We can create them. So man is saying, not only what God has done is wrong, he made me wrong. But also I can be like God and create. It's a very serious form of rebellion. Somebody said, but he shall ascend to the throne. Who was it? It was like Satan, right? Yeah. Scripture continues by informing us that God blessed them. And uh, said, be fruitful and increase in number, or be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, is verse 28. Male and female are addressed here together. Together they are blessed, and together they are given this double mandate to produce offspring and to subdue and rule creation. The Lord gives us a specific identity as either male or female. It's something that's a gift of God. It's something to cherish. And the Lord wants his people to be distinctive, separate, and holy from a world and culture lost in sin. We are in the middle of what some would call a culture war where this kind of rebellion is celebrated. Related to it is homosexual sin. It has become a glorified human right. Although the Bible is clear on the matter, even Christians will celebrate this kind of sin. The Bible is clear. There's three kinds of law, real quick. There's moral law, there's ceremonial law, and there's civil law. No, civil law is not necessarily binding on us today. It was binding on Israel. Ceremonial law was fulfilled. Moral law is binding forever. It's moral law. Leviticus 18 speaks to sexual immorality. That is moral law. It is binding. Romans chapter 1 means what it says. And the gender fluidity is another manifestation of, the, of this kind of sin. So when society is in rebellion against God, what we see what the scriptures give us and what we see, divine judgment follows. And, uh, you can just kind of look and see where we are now with that. So we need to pray for mercy. We need to realize we're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual battle. Probably have shared this before. I don't know if I've shared it with everyone. Um, I recall in Ramadi, Iraq, a bulletin board. In the command post, there was a script of paper. It was very brief. It said, complacency kills. And I've actually, I still remember that. And I'll probably always remember that. And uh, I apply it to, to spiritual warfare too. When we do battle with our sin. Complacency kills. I think the local churches in America are complacent have gotten complacent, have been complacent. But the evil one, the evil one does not rest. We need to recognize this and be aggressive in combating evil in our times. How are we supposed to do it? It's a spiritual war. We use spiritual means. We administer the word of God faithfully. We preach the gospel. It starts here in the church. It starts in the home. Church is where we're equipped for battle. Home is where we, we train, where you have a, a house full of children or you're, you're single. We train at home, right? We do take this stuff home, right? And study and expand on it. By the way, it's not enough to call sin, sin. That's important. That's something that we, um, the, 
the local churches here at least aren't in the world today at least are not uh, are not doing. It is important to call sin what it is, but it's not enough to say someone is in violation of the law. If someone is under the just wrath of God, it is true, but we don't stop there. We, we give them the good news. We must give them the gospel as well. God has called all men everywhere to repentance. It's from Acts 17. First Corinthians chapter 6, we all know. Verse 9, we like to use it against sexual immorality. I think we, well, I've seen people all too often that will stop short of verse 11. That's the best one. First Corinthians 6, 11 says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. These people need to be loved. We are to love others and care for them. Tell them the truth. They need to be washed. They need to be sanctified. They need to be justified. We carry the gospel to a lost world, a dying world. We have the greatest treasure. We have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So God created them male and female. Next point was God created man in his image. How is man related to the image of God? Well, first of all, it's not an attribute or possession of man. It's something we are. Genesis 1.26 speaks to identity. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It does not speak to the body. God has not a body. It speaks to our nature. It speaks some to our place over the rest of creation, having dominion over it. What this means, essentially, we are like God in ways that nothing else is like God. Basically, yes. Um, the main thing about the image of God is that we are given some of his attributes, thereby separating us and making us different from the beasts and from other created things. God has communicable attributes. He has incommunicable attributes. Attributes he shares, attributes he does not share. He does not share his omniscience. He does not share his omnipotence. There are some he does share, mainly moral attributes, such as think holiness, love, goodness, kindness, think fruit of the spirit, patience. These are attributes that are shared, communicable. And because we bear God's image, there's a manner in which we exhibit these attributes. Look at Romans 2.15. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, meaning the law of Moses. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. If you look at that closely and in context, I don't think the picture here is of a redeemed people or born-again people. I think we're seeing here um, the Gentile world in general who have enough knowledge of the moral law of God in their hearts by virtue of being created in his image so that their consciences are conflicted. So man has the law written on his heart from creation. We are made in his image. It is a law that we're at enmity with, or at least that fallen man is at enmity with. 
It is only in regeneration we are enabled to walk according to the law written on the heart when we are born again. God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. The result of that is that the law of God is no longer offensive to us. We are no longer hostile to it. But that creation, man, did have the power to keep the law. He didn't have it written. He didn't have Genesis through Deuteronomy to look at and read. Man was, however, created mutable. Man could change and fall from his original state. In our church's confession, the 1689 Baptist Confession, in chapter 9, it says this. It says, man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, yet was unstable so that he might fall from it. Ecclesiastes 7.29, truly this only I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We are fallen creatures. Fallen man lacks the ability to do that which is pleasing to God. Fallen man lacks the ability to make any move toward his own salvation. Man is redeemed by the effectual working of the power of God, whereby through the proclamation of the gospel, he regenerates the soul. He imparts new life to the sinner, calling him to repentance is a spiritual resurrection by no less power than God had created the heavens and the earth. The awakened soul naturally repents and believes. He repents and believes the gospel unto justification before God. This belief is a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and him only. It's trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. It's trusting in his righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. The salvation of man is by the merits of Jesus Christ. If you remember our definition of justification, it was, uh, it was God's action in declaring his people righteous and placing them in a state of legal perfection before his law. On the basis of the merited righteousness he provided freely for them in Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Obey his commands. We know the hymn, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Follow him. I will leave you with this quote. And I, I don't remember who said it or where I got it. But we know our place in the universe only when we remember that he is our creator and we are his creatures. Know our place. We do have to know who God is and who we are in relation to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for your word. We praise you for your mighty work of creation. We praise you for your mighty work of salvation. God, we ask that you would take these things that we learn on Sunday and, uh, Help us to apply them. We ask you, Father, to, to walk with us every day and to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.